16-year-old son who's been bedridden for years on all the different meds they use for Crohn's disease. I don't even know half of them. And losing weight, losing the will to live, he starts on the peroxide nebulization, and not, not as rapidly, it took him about four months. Then one day, like him, the light switch went on, he felt great, stopped all his medicines, started gaining weight, eating, went to school again on all the sports teams, and never had another symptom of Crohn's disease in his life. You're giving, uh, letting people take their health into their own hands. Uh, which is uh, not quite encouraged by the, the way we were educated as physicians, that we don't let people take care of their own health, but you are giving them the power and the information and they can decide what to do with it. Welcome to the Dr. Joy Kong podcast. This is where I have a chance to share with you some of the latest developments in the space of holistic health, longevity, and wellness. I have always honored intellectual curiosity and scientific rigor combined with real-world practicality. My goal is that what you learn here will help you live longer and live better. Hope you enjoy the journey with me. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me again. And today I am so excited to be interviewing Dr. Thomas Levy. Um, he is a super expert on so many areas of health. And uh, I'm just thrilled to have him on to share his wisdom and knowledge. So Dr. Levy, thank you so much for being my guest. My pleasure. Thank you for the kind introduction. <laughs> yeah, so I want to just introduce the audience a little bit more about you. Um, so just briefly, you know, I, I know you're highly accomplished, but this is a brief intro introduction. So Dr. Levy is a board certified cardiologist and a bar certified attorney. And he practiced cardiology for 15 years and then began to research the enormous toxicity associated with dental work, uh, as well as pronounced uh, ability of properly administered vitamin C to neutralize this toxicity. So now he has written 13 books with several addressing the wide ranging properties of vitamin C in neutralizing all toxins and resolving most infections as well as his vital role in the effective treatment of heart disease and cancer. And other books address the important roles of dental toxicity and nutrition in disease and health. Um, so he was inducted into the Orthomolecular Medicine Hall of Fame in 2016. And uh, Dr. Levy continues to research the impact of orthomolecular application of vitamin C and antioxidants in general on chronic degenerative diseases, including heart disease. Um, his ongoing research goes into the areas of uh, focal scurvy, which arises from oxidative stress and especially intracellular stress. Um, and, and all these conditions benefit from protocols that optimize antioxidant levels in the body. Uh, in particular, the cause and effect relationship between oral cavity infections and all heart attacks uh, is now solidly established. So I can't wait to have you shed some light on these subjects a lot of people are concerned about how they can protect their, their own health after this long bout with um, COVID uh, pandemic and also possibly injuries from some of the therapeutics that were introduced. Um, so maybe you can shed us uh, some light on the ways that we can protect ourselves um, after COVID. There's many ways and many different protocols, and I don't want to present something and represent that as the only way to approach it because there's many different ways to approach it. Uh, depending on the patient, there's different response rates and there's economy too. I mean, so often we get tied up into our intellectual stuff about we need to do this, 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 and this. And the patient either can't come close to affording it or can't come close to finding it. So we need to keep our suggestions in addition to being effective, uh, as simple and obtainable and economical as possible. So the problem with the long haul COVID, okay, if you will, chronic COVID, is you have the persistence of the spike protein. I call it persistent spike protein, PSP syndrome. And when you start looking at all the literature that's already been accumulated on this, people that have had COVID long haul and still haven't gotten over it, uh, many of whom have been vaccinated as well, 
I think the literature is finally, <laughs> reluctantly, if you will, uh, acknowledging that the vaccine recipients are the vast majority of the chronic COVID patients. And not surprisingly, what's the vaccine decide to do? Supposedly put messenger RNA into your body to produce more spike protein. And we're just saying right now that the disease condition is persistent spike protein. So you're just putting fuel on the fire, so to speak. I mean, even before I go on, I want to make it clear to anybody listening that it's my earnest recommendation, don't even consider if you've already gotten through one or two uh, injections without any apparent problem, don't proceed to a booster because you're just inviting new problems that you might not be able to get rid of the rest of your life, however shortened and miserable that life might be, because a lot of these long-haul COVID patients, they have some degree of spike protein everywhere in their body, okay? They just manifest at the areas where it's most prominent. Uh, you have a lot of CNS problems, concentration, memory, uh, headache, uh, seizure, strokes. Then you have the heart problem. So many people have had the heart problem and continue to have it, which is another problem too, because the troponin test, for example, detects when uh, a heart muscle cell is inflamed enough to start basically dying and releasing this protein into the blood. Meaning also never, never, never consider any elevation of the troponin test acceptable. Same thing along the lines of the D-dimer test, which is a measure of how quickly blood clots dissolve. And I think most of us realize at this point in time that uh, the vaccine, COVID, with and without the vaccine, has been associated with an astronomical number of thrombotic events, blood clots throughout the body, often the immediate cause of death when they're large enough. So this is the situation we face right now in dealing there's a lot of easy ways to prevent it, okay? And some of the ways in which you prevent it are largely the same with how you treat it. You just treat it with higher doses and a more vigorous approach of the measures that you would use to prevent it. Specifically, the probably the best ways to prevent it involve uh, a regular dose of vitamin C, high dose, multigram. Uh, along with uh, hydrocortisone. Most people, especially in the group that succumbs to an infection, are, succ are succumbing to it because they're not secreting enough cortisol in their body to push the vitamin C into the cell, which most people don't realize is the primary reason for cortisol to exist. Uh, the natural hydrocorticosteroid in your body, we all hear that prescription corticosteroids and cortic synthetic corticosteroids and cortisol are the most powerful anti-inflammatory agents known to man. Well, no. They're the most potent ways to push the most potent anti-inflammatory agent, namely vitamin C inside the cell. So that's why they get that reputation. And that's also why long-term steroid use burns out because you just end up getting a lot of nonspecific effects on the body, but the body has no vitamin C left for you to push it inside the cell unless you're making that an active part of your treatment program. So uh, hydrocortisone with vitamin C, uh, very important uh, before, during, maintenance, after hydrogen peroxide nebulization. Uh, I have a number of examples that have shown that peroxide nebulization, and I don't recommend it this way, but it was proven in a situation where the people were so desperately poor, they couldn't afford anything else. But hydrogen peroxide nebulization alone easily prevents uh, COVID. And we have a study in Ghana that shows that over a thousand workers at a COVID hospital who opted to use a simple gargle of peroxide and a sniff in both nose once a day zero COVID in those people, zero. Whereas a large group similar to that size chose not to do it, and 40% of them got COVID. So oh. it's very easy to prevent it. And once you have it, it's also pretty easy to get over it. Uh, hydrogen peroxide nebulization 
has in this one study that I did with someone in Colombia, South America, was able to resolve 20 out of 20 cases of advanced COVID as a monotherapy in five days. So again, I wouldn't, I'm not recommending anybody do peroxide nebulization and nothing else, but never fail to make it part of your regimen. Okay. Yeah, amazing. What uh, would the, be the percentage of hydrogen peroxide you use? Best would be 3%, unless, you know, it's just uh, so irritating or something that you want to dilute it down. It's an interesting point because in this group of patients in Colombia, they were all severely short of breath. And if you're severely short of breath and you have COVID and you're not able to afford to take anything else, you're pretty close to death. Mm. And all of them, not all of them, most of them started the 3%. Found it a little bit off-putting, and my friend said, well, let's dilute it down. They said, no, 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 I'm already breathing better. I don't care. Leave it on there, you know, so mm -hmm. that's how. And, and when you nebulize hydrogen peroxide, literally in a minute or two, if you have a pulse oximeter, you can see your uh, blood oxygenation go up a good 2 3%, okay? So it's what I call a poor man's oxygen nasal cannula. Mm -hmm. So the peroxide nebulization is important. Methylene blue. Very important. Uh, it violates the laws of orthomolecular medicine. You talked about that for people that don't know what orthomolecular means. It means trying to replace the things that you're naturally depleted in. Mm. So this is one example, probably the only example that I know of, where a completely synthetic drug, really the first synthetic drug ever made, actually in 1876, uh, turns out to have an incredible amount of orthomolecular-like products, but properties, because it basically does the same thing that vitamin C does. And in the central nervous system, it does it better. So uh, a number of studies have shown incredible case histories of patients with septic shock, secondary to COVID, not responding to vasopressors, intubated, going into a coma, and coding. And then after they coded, they started the methylene blue and the patient completely recovered. In this one particularly uh, 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 crazy case, they started the methylene blue, the patient got better, and they stopped the methylene blue, the patient got worse and coded again. And mm -hmm. then this time they started the methylene blue and kept them on it for seven or eight days until discharge. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the three biggies along with supplemental enzymes natokinase, lumbrokinase, uh, serapeptase, uh, bromelain with N-acetylcysteine. These are all important things to, uh, to take, especially if you have any elevation of your D-dimer test. Uh, if you get your D-dimer down to normal, uh, then, you know, those get a little expensive. One that's not expensive, though, is the natokinase, and I recommend to people, especially in this day and age where they're talking about shedding of the spike protein, new exposures, I say take the natokinase for life. It's, mm -hmm. it's derived from a fermented soy, so it's something that's been a food product in Asia and Japan for eons, very safe, but very effective in actually dissolving the spike protein where it can find it. Mm -hmm. So those are your big ones that I advocate most because they're available relatively economical. Uh, certainly, the methylene blue is very economical. Vitamin C, if you take it orally, is economical. You'd like to get an IV if you could, which costs more and it's more difficult to find. Uh, and, and the thrombolytic enzymes and the hydrogen peroxide nebulization is as dirt cheap, non-toxic, and mm -hmm. effective a therapy uh, as exists. Uh, so, now, somebody who has a little C, more- I'm just curious, vitamin sure. C, you would recommend is it like between two to 10 milligrams? Uh, as an oral dose, yeah, something along those lines. Maybe a little more than two. I'd, I'd try to, unless you have extremely sensitive bowels, uh, you want to at least be getting uh, three, four, five, six grams on board a day. Mm -hmm. Some people that have sensible, really sensitive bowels can actually take most of their dose of vitamin C in a large glass of juice or water and just sip it throughout the day. And when you take in milligram doses versus gram doses of vitamin C, nearly all of it gets absorbed, doesn't cause the diarrhea effect, and you're able to get in the whole dose 
without just, say, taking two grams all at once and then having your loose stool that is caused by the uh, uptake of fluid from the vitamin C uh, in, in the colon. Okay, so, so no, th those are the type of doses we're talking about, not, not doses, not expensive doses. And again, if you're in a position where you can afford it and find it, then you need to pursue ozone therapies, mm -hmm. uh, ultraviolet blood irradiation, and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Now, hyperbaric is incredibly difficult to find and pretty expensive, but if you have the means, don't give up on resolving your situation before finding and doing a course of hyperbaric treatments. I mean, we have so many other examples of infection, deep-seated infection, osteomyelitis into the bones where people have had it for years. You know, the vitamin C is not touching it. The antibiotics not touching it. Nothing's touching it. Put them in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber push in that oxygen at one and a half to two to three atmospheres, oftentimes which you can also administer vitamin C during the hyperbaric treatment. And this is just incredible. It's, it's resolved Lyme disease for some patients. Hmm. And that's where I think we have a, an important analogy here. Lyme I consider to be an embedded pathogen. Okay, it just gets deep inside the cells, probably the different uh, subcellular organelles. Uh, and I think the same thing's happening with spike protein. Now, I can't tell you the pathophysiology is the same, but I can tell you that we've had examples in the past of people taking 20 to 21, 50 to 75 gram infusions of vitamin C daily, six days a week with advanced Lyme not getting better at all until the 20th infusion. And then they said it's like a light switch is on and then they're fine. Disease is gone. Clarification of the blood work, the whole ball of wax. Obviously something was going on the first 19 infusions. And for lack of a more eloquent way of expressing it, each was getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the cells, a multi-layered approach, if you will. And something now that's recently, well, it hasn't, it's relatively recently come out and it's finally starting to gain some steam is ozone dialysis, uh, uh, also known as EBU, extracorporeal blood oxygenation and ozonation. And this is phenomenal because in contrast to regular uh, ozone autohemotherapy or hemotherapy, uh, where you treat 250 to 300 cc's of the blood, an EBU treatment over the course of an hour to an hour and 20 minutes can actually ozonate your entire blood supply. Mm -hmm. And in the course of doing that, and this is a really biggie, I don't think it's getting enough attention yet, is there's a dialysis filter in line. And my goodness, uh, it may not sound scientific, but the gunk mm -hmm. and the garbage that gets screened out of the blood. Some people are so sick when they first get their first one that they can't do the treatment because the blood is too thick to get through the filter and you don't get it. So they need to go on a course of several intravenous vitamin C and other things to loosen things up, if you will, and mm -hmm. can come back and do that treatment. But I mean, who would be surprised to, uh, to know that uh, a car that's 20 years old with 300,000 miles and never had an oil filter change, yeah, what do you think that oil filter is going to look like? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so these are all some very exciting evolving therapies. And I might add, sadly, it may, is because of this nature of the spike protein, and we're unfortunately seeing it more and more and more every day, is... It looks like it's not going to resolve in a lot of people completely. So something people are going to have to potentially deal with is going through a fairly extensive protein and then feeling better, maybe feeling normal and staying that way for several months and then gradually relapse. Okay, so uh, obviously there'll be a lot of variability on that and somebody, the strength of their immune system, how vigorously they supplement uh, good uh, quality supplements uh, after they've undergone their initial treatment protocol. 
but it's going to be a problem. Go ahead. You're saying these spike protein are persisting or your body keeps making more spike protein? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It, it, uh, that's one thing. The spike protein itself is toxic. And vitamin C is your ultimate anti-toxic toxin therapy. So if that were all it was, if the spike protein is just circulating in the blood, one good dose of vitamin C, it's all over. Mm. But that's not the case. It gets inside the cells. It gets into the DNA, RNA, and it replicates itself. Now, supposedly, I say supposedly, uh, that's what they want because they want to make some more spike protein so you can get an immune response to it. But they don't have any way of turning it off. Okay, so let's let's just be generous and say you get an immune response and then it just continues to generate, 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 generate. What could be more nightmarish, for example, than being exposed to severe toxins, say a large dose of mercury? And you do everything you do to mobilize, excrete the mercury, neutralize it. And then the next day you have another dose of mercury just as big. <laughs> I mean, nothing could be more horrendous than a highly toxic agent that replicates and reproduces itself. And that's what we're facing. Yeah, pretty scary. So, so it may be an ongoing battle. So you're providing some tools, um, which... Most likely is going to temporary temporarily help you win the battle. Yes, I, I, it would be very difficult for anybody to go through the vitamin C, cortisol, methylene blue, hydrogen peroxide, NEB, and thrombolytic enzyme protocol and not feel better. So mm -hmm. uh, that should be the type of goal that the patient takes into it. Is I want to be less miserable. I want to feel better. Okay. Uh, even if I've got a new chronic disease for the rest of my life, let me help cope with it. Let me, I mean, uh, these, these people, some of these people have been decimated, decimated by long haul COVID. I mean, you've heard the expression, the walking zombies, and that's what a lot of them are. They, they just, <laughs> they don't get sick enough to die, but they don't get uh, well enough to feel good. And, uh, and unfortunately, this is appearing to be the legacy of COVID to a great deal. So uh, let me say this too, uh, since it's a very common problem, is the myocarditis. All right, I wanted to point out the fact that uh, when I was a practicing cardiology long before the pandemic, I saw one case of myocarditis, viral myocarditis in my practice, one. Big and large heart, young lady, by the grace of God or her immune system after six months, her heart came back down to normal size and she was fine. It would have been just as likely for her to go in, in the opposite direction, go into pulmonary edema and die of congestive heart failure. But fortunately in her case, nothing due to anything brilliant I did, but uh, it's uh, you're just sort of like uh, truth be known. And if the physician is going to be honest, you're just a spectator. Now, post-pandemic, we have an entirely different animal. We call it myocarditis, but it's not the same entity at all. Pre-pandemic myocarditis is a diffuse inflammation of the muscle. Pandemic myocarditis, it is focal. It is patchy. Some areas of the heart are affected. They have some um, uh, microscope studies that even show single myocytes can be affected in the adjacent myocyte not. So nothing can get much patchier than that. Also, and this is where we get the, again, nasty part of the syndrome, a number of studies have found that it appears that the pathogen or the spike protein in this case likes the conduction systems, conduction system cells in the heart the most, which means two things, which means a very tiny amount of the heart mass-wise is involved and your troponin levels can stay normal because there's not enough mass being destroyed on a regular basis to release the detectable amount. Yet, and I think this is the explanation why we see 
uh, all the young athletes dropping dead, okay, is you get a stress event, adrenaline, or the pilots get a stress event, adrenaline, and those inflamed conduction cells can quickly generate an arrhythmia, maybe an inconsequential arrhythmia, maybe a life-threatening arrhythmia, but an arrhythmia nevertheless, and we also know, and I, I am currently the consultant to the uh, Freedom Flyers group of pilots that are trying to uh, get a voice in their health future with the airlines. And it turns out in, 19, in 2022, the guidelines that the FAA had was uh, a pilot uh, could have a PR interval, prolongation from atrial to ventricle of 0.2 or less and be declared fine which is the standard normal limit. So there's nothing wrong with that. Well, guess what? In the last year, they've changed that to 0.3. <laughs> they've just changed it to 0.3. There's only one reason why you do that, which is there's another new pandemic of prolonged PR intervals, and they don't want to be bothered with dealing with it, testing for it, doing stress tests, doing Holter monitors, uh, and all of this to make sure the pilots are healthy. But of course, the same thing's happening in the general population. Mm -hmm. And so this is why we're seeing, in my opinion, I can't prove this, why so many young people are dropping dead. I mean, you keep track of this, of the European soccer players. My God. Uh, the last count on this one website, they track it, it's up to 450 to 500, uh, either collapsed on the field or collapsed and die on the field. That's incredible. Okay. Huh. Now, uh, that's not COVID. That's the dose of uh, spike protein from the vaccine. Everything in infectious disease is related to dose. When you have a low enough dose, your body deals with it. When you have a moderate dose, your body contracts it. When you have a larger dose, your body contracts it and gets moderately ill. And when you have a huge dose, you contract it and get sick as hell right away. And as I mentioned earlier, you start getting these, and, and all the shots are different, okay? That's another story as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My personal opinion, again, purely opinion here, is for a long time, uh, except for that one famous incident now, the Buffalo Bills in the, uh, in the playoffs last year, nobody in the NFL dropped in. But they were dropping like flies in Europe. Mm -hmm. By intention or good luck, I don't know which, I would tell you that the NFL didn't get the hot shot of vaccine, okay? Because they knew that if Tom Brady drops dead on national TV in the Super Bowl, the cat's out of the bag and it's all over. And then we have to start taking this stuff a whole lot more seriously uh, then we are, or I say we, the government has to start taking things a whole lot more seriously and not to just continue to uh, dismiss things as uh, 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 the vaccine's great, don't be stupid. That's interesting. So that that's confirmed information that you got from, <laughs> from the sports team. I read the articles like everybody else. I don't think uh, there have been some high school football players that have dropped dead, but um, not in the NFL. And the interesting thing, too, about the NFL, and this is supposition, not established fact, is the Buffalo Bill play, player that collapsed on the field during the playoffs was a fairly new player, which tells me, possibly, he didn't get his shot through the NFL. Okay, so he, he didn't get whatever the group treatment was the NFL was. He got one on his own. Uh, and it proved to be too much. That's my guess, my supposition, what I consider to be a good possibility. And how can people, if they're not having symptoms um, and you know they've been exposed to spike protein, and what can they do in their daily life to to protect themselves and prevent any kind of flares? First of all, I recommend that everybody, everyone in the country, gets a troponin and a D-dimer test. You need to know and be sure and be comfortable that those are normal or within the normal range. 
also is something to compare to in the future. If you start getting sick in some ill-defined way, is this something else? Or do I get a new COVID? Did I get a spike protein exposure? Then you repeat those tests and differentiate between something simple and self-limited and something that could be dire. So everybody needs those tests. We have a lot of incredibly, incredibly arrogant doctors who won't even honor their patients' requests to do the tests, but they have laboratories where you can do it on your own. They have, I think, a healthlabs.com. They have Life Extension Foundation, lef.org. These are all places where people can go on and sift through it, order those tests on their own, uh, and, and know for sure whether they might have something going on that they don't know about. Even more so, let's say somebody says, well, that's crazy. That's just being too cautious. Well, then let's ratchet it up one step. If you have any symptomatology at all, if you start having a little, a little stabbing pain in your chest that you never had before, then you damn well better check these things or, you, or you're inviting a great deal of tragedy because even though we are seeing difficulty resolving the spike protein, when you can knock down its active presence and bring things to an asymptomatic state and bring blood work into the normal range, you can obviously still uh, achieve a lot, uh, contribute to the longevity and the quality of the life of the patient. But the other thing is, let's say, flip it around. The D-dimer is a little bit elevated, the troponin is a little bit elevated. Well, you need to see a doctor first that knows what the heck he or she is doing which rules out the mainstream completely. So you need to see an integrative doc, uh, somebody like that along these lines, uh, someone like yourself, uh, that, that appreciates that uh, something like that needs to be treated. The uh, cortisol and the vitamin C is very effective at that. The methylene blue is very effective at that. Uh, and also at that point before somebody like that gets declared resolved, I'm not going to necessarily use the word cured because of what we said about the protein, the spike protein, but gets resolved, then they need to get a stress test, an exercise stress test, and they need to get a, a prolonged, probably not a 24, but a 48 to 72 hour Holter monitor test to make sure there's no background arrhythmias that are coming to play uh, that need to be treated or periodically checked on. A lot of these folks that have any degree of heart problem at all have developed something called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, syndrome, which in a nutshell means uh, if you're just sitting down there comfortably and your heart rate is 75 and you walk across the room, the heart rate's 130. Okay, uh, so that needs to be determined that you're not prone to that and that your stress test response of heart rate is normal and resolves normally. So there's a lot of different ways to validate that. And of course, with the elevated troponin, even if a tiny bit, most people, if they can afford it, okay, there's so many things based on economy, right? If they can afford it, uh, they need to get the CT uh, scan of the myocardium with what's called late gadolinium enhancement, which uh, specifically then lights up any remaining inflamed areas of the heart. Uh, and is it, it's important to know. It's important to know if you're, if you're dealing with something that has resolved or whether you're just going to accept that it's now at a low grade level and you need to be more watchful and in tune with any future symptomatology or events so that you can tr uh, treat them uh, more readily. I mean, I think most people, if you want to keep it simple, will do very well if they can just get access to uh, 50, 75 gram infusions of vitamin C, they'll do great, okay? And in fact, that's probably one of the biggest benefits of the pandemic that I've seen is there's more people around the world now that know about vitamin C and use it regularly than ever before. Mm. So that's a true golden lining. Same thing with the peroxide nebulization. And the really most important thing about the pandemic is that 
so many people now, even though they don't want to believe it, realize what a fraud modern medicine is uh, and realize that majority, majority of doctors do not put the health care of their patients as their number one concern. And then take it a step further, the mainstream doctors that actively suppress other remedies like vitamin C, et cetera, in the intensive care unit for septic shock, those doctors need to be incarcerated and go to jail for negligent manslaughter. That that's that's gonna be uh, that's be gonna be quite a challenge. Um, knowing that what what uh, what we're facing. Uh, so maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about how vitamin C works and why it can neutralize the toxins and why it can be so helpful for COVID situations or spike protein. That comes back to the underlying cause of all disease. Now that sounds grandiose, but it's not. The underlying cause of all disease is, we call it oxidative stress, which is okay. And then we say oxidative stress causes disease. That part's not technically true. What's technically true is the oxidative stress is the disease. So in any given sick cell involved in a different condition, involved in a different toxin, you have a certain array of proteins, sugars, uh, uh, enzymes that are oxidized, electron depleted, and no longer function well or function at all. And the degree and distribution to which those different biomolecules are oxidized, their concentrations, how long they've been oxidized, the chronicity, that determines the disease. That determines, uh, so you don't have, for example, an Alzheimer's cell that has some ill-defined Alzheimer's disease in addition to a unique array of oxidation. Same thing with fibromyalgia, same thing with any disease. So. Because of this, treating disease can get very complicated, as you well know. But defining it is easy. And the, and the, treat, the way you treat any disease is involves two parts. Number one is repair the old oxidative damage. And number two is prevent the new oxidative damage. The degree to which you can accomplish that uh, is the degree to which the patient feels better. And sometimes if you're really vigorous and you're tracking different things closely, you can resolve some of these chronic degenerative diseases that are considered to be um, unresolvable, incurable, uh, much less make them feel better. Um, so vitamin C uh, as an antioxidant is able to repair biomolecules that have been oxidized. And as long as more new molecules are not oxidized on a daily basis than the ones that are being repaired, you can actually start to see progress in resolving what are considered to be chronic degenerative diseases that you can't touch. A main source of this, let me get back to a little favorite point of mine, is the hydrogen peroxide demonization. When I wrote the book, Rapid Virus Recovery, I entitled it that because it was the start of the pandemic and I wanted something out there that people could use, but it could just as easily have been called rapid gut recovery. Hmm. What happens when you nebulize peroxide is you knock out the chronic pathogen colonization covered by biofilms in your nose and throat, which everybody has indefinitely for years on end, if they had a cold, if they had a flu, if they had uh, COVID, if they had anything that, and did not take a specific biofilm stripping intervention like peroxide, but not exclusive to peroxide. So this then stays there forever. And what do you do? You swallow it. You swallow pathogens, you swallow exotoxins, endotoxins, uh, you swallow prooxidant metabolic byproducts, these pathogens, viruses, fungi, uh, bacteria, you name it. And to make it worse, when those pathogens finally die and rupture, they release a huge amount of free iron because that's what the pathogens thrive on is free iron in their literal, their little storage sites of iron. So 
when all of that gets into your gut on a, as the young people like to say, 24-7 basis, you have no way at all maintaining a healthy gut. And I'm sure you realize that, uh, as they talk about it a lot these days, uh, all the probiotics and this out of the other, is they realize, they, uh, alternative or integrative docs, realize that a screwed up microbiome in a leaky gut uh, contribute enormously negatively to every, uh, every syndrome you have in your body. So a primary way of making everything better is to normalize the gut. Many people do with the peroxide nebulization. The, the leaky gut cells, the epithelial cells, they have stem cells there that regenerate new cells every three to five days. So literally, if you don't poison your gut for a week, you've got a brand new gut. So leaky gut is not a chronic disease. It's the chronic infliction of an acute disease. And when you stop that new oxidation, magic happens. Uh, I have a number of cases. One is my good friend, Dr. Honey Hackey, and this other lady that wrote me a, a, a letter. Uh, <laughs> incredible. It said, Dr. Levy, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Her whole family for years had been bothered with black mold fungus. Uh, many of the a number of the children were hospitalized in the intensive care unit, intubated. They had to move out of the house. They took all the supplements, they took all the probiotics, they took off everything, nothing helped. And the lady said after the first hydrogen peroxide nebulization, it was like magic. I can't tell you how well everybody feels now. That's one case. Another case, as I'm sure you're familiar, Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. That's a, you never get over it type disease. You just somehow do want you to have this unique gut disease, which you don't know why you got it or what reason you got it. Same thing. The mother writes the letter. 16-year-old son who's been bedridden for years on all the different meds they use for Crohn's disease. I don't even know half of them. And losing weight, losing the will to live. He starts on the peroxide nebulization. And not, not as rapidly. It took him about four months. Then one day, like him, the light switch went on. He felt great stopped all his medicines, started gaining weight, eating, went to school again on all the sports teams, and never had another symptom of Crohn's disease in his life. And I'm telling you that's because this is what keeps all of those uh, syndromes going. And even though that's a major sidetrack from, let's say, COVID, it's all wrapped up together. And this is why and it might not have made sense if I'd have said this at the outset, but I think it will now, is peroxide nebulization to one degree or another. The person needs to figure out how frequent, how often, you know, once a day, once a week, once a month, whatever, should always be part of every treatment protocol for any condition you have. For any condition. Right. We just said an abnormal gut makes every condition worse, right? Okay. And it does nothing but good. I mean, in, in a nutshell, peroxide is nature's gift to the body. It's what your body uses to kill pathogens. When it kills the pathogen, it leaves behind water and oxygen, which is the perfect setting for healing damaged tissue. Uh, every breath you take, roughly 5% of the oxygen gets incorporated in a new peroxide in the body. It's a highly stable, not unstable molecule. They tell you it's a reactive oxygen species only under certain microenvironments of acid or infection does the peroxide turn on and become a pro-oxidant agent. And common, okay, you have H2O water, O2 oxygen, you have peroxide, H2O2. It is literally one of the most common molecules inside your body, you know, which drives me crazy when, when just lunatics that just don't want to understand, appreciate anything outside of their medicine textbooks and their chemotherapies and their antibiotics <laughs> is that it's a natural substance and the cells in your respiratory tract lining the epithelium of the airways 
naturally secrete peroxide into the airspace. Mm -hmm. So it's the body's natural way to deal with every pathogen that you inhale with every breath, which you do, of course, mm -hmm. just at a very low concentration. So all you're doing is augmenting the body's natural defense and 100% yeah. safe unless you go crazy. I mean, if you go above 3% and you do 12% or 36%, you could damage yourself, you could kill yourself, mm -hmm. but you could kill yourself with anything. Yeah. In the in the prescribed dose, the hydrogen peroxide nebulization is 100% safe. Maybe a little irritation. If you use too high a concentration, you dilute it, you go lower. I'm yeah. sure you're aware of this, but let's say this for whoever's watching the podcast. Contrast that with all prescription medications because right now the statistic is, at least in the United States, 100,000 people a year die from prescription medicines taken the way they were prescribed. Not abused, not taken inappropriately, but the doctor said take one three times a day and now you're dead. Okay, that's never going to happen when you're augmenting a natural defense in your body like the hydrogen peroxide. So I'm surprised to hear that um, every cold you've gotten in your life that there's residual biofilm left. Absolutely. I, I, I haven't heard of that. Um, and that's concerning because we've all had years of accumulating uh, these, uh, I guess, chance to accumulate these biofilm. Maybe you could explain a little bit to listeners what the biofilm is and what, what's in it. The biofilm is a uh, pathogen condominium. <laughs> it just <laughs> covers them up and doesn't let anything in. And it's naturally produced by the pathogen. Uh, different, um, I don't want to, uh, different, it's either polysaccharides or, mm -hmm. or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. It's very tenacious, okay. And here's the haunting part, if you will. Uh, pathogens, when they're free-floating, they're not forming anything. But the moment they land, if you will, on the mucosal surface, Within 24 hours, there's a biofilm covering them. Mm. So if you're not taking interventions at the time you have the cold, at the time you have the flu, to knock out the pathogens or and or knock out any recent brand new biofilms that have been formed, uh, you're not going to resolve this issue. And I mean, look at the drugstores. Look at the aisles and aisles and aisles of diarrhea, constipation, gut, gas, bloating. I mean... It's a major healthcare industry, uh, but everybody just accepts it. They accept it because everybody else is in the same boat. You, you never consider something abnormal if everybody else you know has it. Mm -hmm. But it's abnormal. It's abnormal, absolutely. Uh, I, I might add, uh, this, since we're going into some detail on this, I stumbled across this, if you will, probably about six years ago when I was doing my research for my book, Magnesium Reversing Disease. And somewhere along the line, they started talking about nebulization of magnesium for asthma and other things. And then somewhere along the line, I saw they were nebulizing hydrogen peroxide. I said, whoa. And I started thinking about it, peroxide. I read a little bit more. I did a little more research. And anyway, to make a long story short, I started nebulizing peroxide because I had Many years with a horrible sinus problem, I would get a cold and I would hang on to it for months, for months, literally months. I mean, coughing. And so I said, anything to get out of this. And it helped a great deal. It didn't resolve it completely. There was something later on that we may or may not get into that I'll tell you about that. It resolved it largely. But here's the incredible part. The very first time I nebulized with hydrogen peroxide, and I was maybe... 66 years old, something like that. So I'd spent a little time on the toilet in my day. Let's put it that way. I did the nebulized peroxide, and the next day, it was shocking. I got, I had the most incredible, well-formed, perfect bowel movement of my life. Mm -hmm. Nothing else came close. I said, what on earth happened here? And then I started thinking about things. I started thinking about all the garbage that much more flagrantly, I was consuming 24-7, keeping my gut just screwed up perpetually. 
And then it began to make sense that that was present on a lesser basis, okay, on people that felt well, because the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you had these, uh, and the same thing happened with my uh, my friend, Dr. Honeyhacky. We we even had a, uh, <laughs> you know, joking among friends, we decided to uh, be, be the, uh, the CEO and the chief operating officer of what we call, yeah, the perfect bowel movement society. Because that's what the peroxide did for us. And it stayed that way ever since. And while I can't tell anybody listening to this that this will be the case with them, people will say, well, how often do you peroxide, nebulize peroxide now? I nebulize it when there's the slightest minimal deterioration in the quality of my bowel movement. Then I nebulize and it's perfect again the next day. Amazing. <laughs> so if someone, someone wants to do the nebulizing, uh, 3% uh, hydrogen peroxide, how much volume should they use? The nebulizers just have a standard little chamber. It takes okay. about, depending on the chamber, six, seven cc's. And so you just, uh, you just use it until uh, you think you've nebulized enough or until the mist runs out and you decide whether or not you want to add more to the chamber. The nebulizer is a very simple air pump. It's just a basic air pump blasting air into a unique container that somehow blasts the solution against a fixed wall, and then somehow that explodes it in the mist. It's it's pretty it's pretty yeah. sexy when you think about it. Uh, they have the handheld nebulizers that, that work, but they're so delicate they break so easy. Uh, Somebody for 30 or 40 or 50 bucks could invest in one of these tabletop nebulizers and that'll last them for life and take care of the entire family. Yeah. So there's so many, I mean, there are people who may have some biofilm um, and had exposure to COVID or the vaccine and they may want to protect themselves. So they may use it for a certain length of time. And there are people who are having long COVID symptoms and they probably need it much longer. Do you have a like approximate recommendation for people? Well, this, you, you, you went right on to it is for some people with long haul COVID, just getting on a regular regimen of hydrogen peroxide nebulization could very likely resolve a bunch of them. Uh, we, we already have studies that show where they look for it, uh, 40, 50% of long haul COVID uh, individuals have uh, COVID, you can isolate it from the stool. So it's definitely in the gut and it's definitely colonized uh, in the in the upper airways. So yeah, you can do a lot of good. I mean, there's no reason to do that and nothing else, obviously, but you can do a lot of good with that alone. Uh, we're only beginning to see, in my opinion, the incredible potential applications of this therapy. But it's... Uh, uh, but it suffers from the fact that it's extremely cheap, extremely available, doesn't require a doctor or a clinic. You can do it in your home, and it's available around the world. I mean, those will always be the factors that will keep it from uh, from being optimally used <laughs> because of the opposition from the uh, from the authorities. Right. Are Are you going to use it for too long? Is that a concern? Let's say you no, use the appropriate no. dose and then you use it year round. Is that too much? Well, what you note, what you note is, is if you've got something going on, you don't notice anything because it's busy stripping biofilm and killing pathogens. But maybe after you've done it two or three times, and then you do it the third time, and then oh, it's a it's a little stingy, it's a little bit this out of the other. That's because you've knocked out the pathogen, you've knocked out the biofilm, and now all you're doing is a mild oxidation of your mucous membranes, which, of course, you don't want to do. I mean, always pay attention to your symptomatology, obviously, no doubt about that. Uh, and because of that, uh, everybody needs to adjust it for themselves. Uh, I talk to a lot of dental groups uh, around the country, and uh, I say, look, guys, I said, nobody on the planet uh, inhales and deals with more acute pathogens on a daily basis than a dentist. You're looking at a dozen open mouths for nine, 10, 11 hours a day. At the end of every day, before you go home, go to your office and nebulize for one or two minutes. That's all. Nothing at, at all has a possibility of taking hold. But don't do it the next morning. 
I mean, if you do it the next morning, do it a little longer. That, that would be the main proviso. But a lot of times when you're actually just, let's say, developing a cold or what seems to be a cold or the early signs of the flu, uh, if you nebulize vigorously two or three times the first day, many of those people would be completely well the next day. I mean, you, there's, uh, I, in my book, I say there's no need to suffer from a cold or flu again. That doesn't mean instantaneous resolution, but that means definitely you never need to spend three days, five days, a week, two weeks sick again, not mm -hmm. with an upper respiratory tract condition. Amazing. I might add too, and it's less well established, it makes a lot of sense, and they have articles in the literature, you're going inside the lungs. Hey, guess that this is good for cancer of the lungs too, and other, and other lung conditions like that. Remember, even with cancers, all cancers, 100% of them, are characterized by extreme levels of oxidative stress where they sit due to pathogens, by and large. When you knock out the endogenous pathogens that are involved and allow that oxidative stress to start to lessen, then the body's mechanisms can kick in. But uh, the, there's a number of great things that are being done. It kind of disappoints me now because uh, a lot of the mm, COVID docs out there Good ones, not not the not the nasty ones, and I'm not going to mention any names just to say that. But now it's like they're stumbling across inhalation as as something for COVID, and uh, let's inhale budesonide, uh, steroid. Let's inhale this. Let's inhale that. Stop it! Inhale hydrogen peroxide. It's a natural substance. It causes no side effects. It works. But everybody wants to create their own little animal, I guess. So if vitamin C you believe is, is good at neutralizing all toxins, um, right. is that the same for hydrogen peroxide? No, hydrogen peroxide is not a, hydrogen, not a toxin neutralizer per se, but it knocks out the pathogens that generate the toxins. Mm. So you have a powerful antitoxin effect, but not because the peroxide per se uh, attacked the toxin. Okay, and how does vitamin C neutralize all these toxins? Great question. Um, by and large, by something called the Fenton reaction. And in the Fenton reaction, you have three components. You have something that donates an electron to ferric three plus iron. And the ferric three plus iron donates the electron, becomes ferric ferrous two plus iron. And in that two plus state, it's capable that it wasn't able to do before of donating that electron, passing it along to hydrogen peroxide, which then breaks down into hydroxyl radical, which is such a powerful oxidating, oxidizing agent, it can't migrate. It can't migrate because it immediately oxidizes whatever it's next to when it's formed. Now, that's what kills pathogens, and that was, that's what kills cells that are infested with a large amount of pathogens. Now, what does the vitamin C do? It's so elegant, I love it. We know, or people that work with vitamin C know, it's the more the better, okay? And if you're not getting the effect you want or the effect you, it's because you need more. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have 50 grams of vitamin C infusing. It goes into the, into the uh, blood and then into the extracellular space and then a large amount of, uh, amount of it goes into the cell. Once it's in the cell, vitamin C is an electron donor it donates the electrons to Fe3+, that goes to Fe2+, and that electron goes to peroxide, and the peroxide breaks down the hydroxyl radical. And at the same time, the vitamin C is supplying those electrons inside the cell for biochemical reasons that I can't appreciate. It's massively generating a new formation of hydrogen peroxide outside the cell, extracellular, that can then go inside the cell. And then once it goes inside the cell, another elegant thing is more peroxide in the cell will take ferritin, the iron storage sites, and mobilize from the ferritin more Fe3 plus that can be converted to the Fe2 plus. And also, all these pathogens and pathogen-related cells have lots of iron. I mentioned earlier that they thrive on iron, so they're already self-targeted for the Fenton reaction. So no reaction is going to do the job you want if it expires, if it runs out of substrate. 
So, but by supplying vitamin C, you continue to supply new peroxide, new electrons, new iron, and you continue to supply all of the elements needed to continue the Fenton reaction until the infection has been completely resolved. Okay. So by talking about toxins, you're mostly talking about pathogens. Pathogens are the primary source of new toxins in the body. I like to say, you know, if you, if you live next door to a pesticide plant, well, you got another toxin exposure that other people don't. But for the most part, uh, unless you're really, really careful on your diet, we all have the same environmental toxin exposures. And our really large toxin exposure has to do with focal infections, mainly in the head and neck, oral cavity, gums, root canals, other infected teeth, tonsils, and sinuses, and the chronic pathogen colonization. I might add, too, uh, we won't have a lot of chance to talk about it, but remember earlier I said that you resolve disease by stopping, by repairing the old oxidation and stopping the new oxidation. Well, that means, and we have evidence of this, like, for example, with uh, Alzheimer's disease, that means for the most part, you also have the biofilms and CPC inside affected disease tissues, because that's how they're getting more new toxins on a daily basis than they're reversing, which is why it's the pattern for a chronic degenerative disease to progress and not to stall or not to regress. And so a lot of these measures, especially the biooxidative measures that I'm talking about, I think we're going to finally start to see some of these um, chronic degenerative diseases uh, completely resolving to degrees we've never seen before. Because when you design the protocol to knock out the reason, the new oxidative stress that's in situ, I mean, we have tissue samples of Alzheimer's patients, then it has all the different uh, oral pathogens in the tissue, okay? So all the porphyromonas, gingivalis, it's all there. It's all there, just like it is in your throat, smoldering along, uh, not able to be completely and easily wiped out because of the biofilm. I mean, you don't form biofilms just on mucous membranes. You form them just about anywhere that the pathogens can nestle for more than 24 hours. Yeah, and there's some um, scientists who really believe that a lot of the neurodegenerative conditions have viral origin. And sure. so so I assume they're also um, hiding in biofilm and uh, possibly, possibly in the brain. Viruses, bacteria, fungi, protozoa, every pathogenic microbe you can think of uh, can be part of these pathogen colonies, if you will. So are you saying if you are giving somebody just antiviral, let's say, you know, to target the viruses, it may not work as well if we can't break the biofilm? That's correct. That's okay. correct. Okay. And there is no prescription medicine in existence to date that's capable of breaking down a biofilm. So that's why we have to go to the orthomolecular because the mainstream just don't have it. Hmm. Have you seen good uh, results in patients like autistic kids or Alzheimer's patients um, by using hydrogen peroxide or vitamin C? I haven't had a, a personal experience with that at this point in time, so I, I can't tell you uh, yay or nay on that. Uh, I will say, though, that what all the brain needs is more vitamin C. but Reduce vitamin C doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Oxidized vitamin C does. And then once it gets inside the cells, enzymatic and non-enzymatic uh, mechanisms reduce it and traps the vitamin C inside the cell so that you need, so that you end up getting neurons with should have a hundredfold more vitamin C inside them than in the bloodstream. Well, it turns out now that if you if you're able to give vitamin C and it's Ironically enough, it's oxidized form. You get a much more powerful impact on the brain. Combine this, and I'm telling you something that's not been done yet. I'm talking about it, the articles in the literature, but we all know articles are not in the literature to be applied. They're just to be put on somebody's resume. 
Well, anyway, uh, there's a lot of information on intranasal insulin. Okay, squirting 10 units, 20 units, up to 40 units, and it rapidly goes in the olfactory tract and accumulates in the brain, has no systemic effect at all. So there's no hypoglycemia that's induced throughout the body. And something that's little known is that insulin is probably, along with cortisol, your two biggest uh, accelerators or provocateurs of pushing vitamin C inside the cell. Mm -hmm. So when you're able to take a vitamin C level, gets inside the brain, hit it with the insulin. I mean, they've already shown that this insulin intranasal by itself, by itself, has substantial positive effects on Alzheimer's in all the parameters of the symptomatology there. So I think this type of approach uh, will help to a greater or lesser degree all neurologic disease, and it will help a great deal for the long-haul COVID because I think most of the long-haul COVIDs have a significant CNS component. Yeah, Amazing. This is so enlightening. And I feel like we can go on forever if I just keep asking questions, but we have to wrap up. Um, yeah, this is so wonderful. So um, maybe tell the listeners where they can find your books and how they can get more uh, knowledge from you. Sure. Um, uh, you can give them, I'll say it out loud here, but uh, somebody that had a chance to write it or doesn't hear it right, but uh, my email is open to anybody. It's T E L E V Y M D T E L E V Y M D at yahoo.com. And anybody that wants can uh, send me a, a note asking for information. I'll, I'll give about three or four of my books away as ebooks. Uh, and there's a whole host of articles heavily referenced that I've written on the topics I'm talking about. Uh, so people can get, get more information on that. I will say, I don't do consults. So, I mean, when they start saying, I have this, 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 and this, what do I do? All I'm going to do is end up saying, read this information and decide for yourself. So no, <laughs> cons no consults offered, but I'll give you a lot of information. Yeah, wonderful. That that would be extremely helpful, you know, anyhow. So you're giving, uh, letting people uh, take their health into their own hands, uh, which is... Uh, not quite encouraged by the, the way we were educated as physicians, that we don't let people take care of their own health, but you are giving them the power and the information and they can decide what to do with it. <laughs> well, most doctors are not like you, Joy. I mean, they're better off taking care of themselves than just going to the first doctor in the yellow pages that they come across. I mean, if you can go through the pandemic for the last three years and think nothing but glorious thoughts about modern medicine, You've witnessed something that I haven't witnessed. <laughs> well said. Okay, Dr. Levy, it's been such a pleasure and a privilege to listen to you and uh, for you to share such important information with everybody. And I, I hope this is going to save a lot of people's lives and improve a lot of lives. So thank you again. Very good. Thank you for having me on, Joy. A pleasure. A pleasure being on. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed the content. And if so, please rate and follow this podcast. To reach me, you can contact Uplift Longevity Center. That is Uplift with a Y. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Joy Kong MD. See you next time.